to see you all this evening. So glad to uh, be with you and have this privilege of tackling this subject of systematic theology. Um, I'm really looking forward to our study. Hope you are as well. Um, getting ready to leave the house tonight. May May asked me, so are you prepared? And I said, well, I worked as hard as I could to make this as boring as possible. And she said, well, honey, that shouldn't be too hard for you to do. So, so I think she was joking, right? So, no, it's the last thing I want is this to be, to be boring because God is not boring. And uh, greatly looking forward to, uh, to this study and, and hope you are as well. Um, a little bit of house cleaning format. Um, I want this to be, have a lot of content, but I also want to hear from you. So I want to open up for some questions. Um, ask some questions as we go through. Uh, we'd love to have some participation. And if you have questions, uh, feel free to interrupt me. Uh, raise your hand. Uh, I may regret saying that later, but raise your hand uh, if you have a question and uh, we will we'll tackle it. Um, so let me begin with, with prayer and, uh, and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, uh, we give thanks to you for your word. Um, we give thanks to you for Christ. We thank you for life, um, spiritual life, to know you. Um, and I ask that you would bless this, this class tonight and that we would um, indeed come to know you a little bit better because of it and uh, live lives that are, that are faithful. Um, so we love you and we ask for your blessing on this now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the way these equip- equipping classes have been put together, um, this is in the section that's called Theological Disciplines. So they're 12-week classes, and they're especially aimed at helping us think biblically, loving the Lord with our minds. Um, So far, we've done church history, uh, and we've also uh, done hermeneutics, and now we come to systematic theology. Um, So it's going to be a 12-week course, and This 12 weeks, we're going to tackle two topics, bibliology, the first half, and theology proper in the second half. Theology proper is just a big way of saying the study of God himself, the being of God. Um, And then uh, the next semesters, we'll probably have one or two more semesters of systematic theology. Um, But before we dive into our topic tonight of bibliology, all I want to do this week is take a step back and help us think, what is this thing called systematic theology? What is it? Why is it important? Why are we doing this in the church? That's something that belongs in a seminary classroom somewhere. So that's what we're going to do tonight. What is systematic theology? But before we can even do that, we need to think a bit about theology in general. And to get us going, I want to uh, show us a video clip. Um, Someone showed it to me a couple years back, and it it really helps to capture the the flavor of of what I want to happen in these these classes. Um, When you hear the word theology, any number of things could be coming to your mind. Um, But my goal is that not only will you come to grow in your knowledge about God, through these classes, but that you would come to know God better. I've been teaching through the Gospel of John in our Sunday school class, and the definition of eternal life, according to John, is that you would know God. 
Um, it's why we were saved. Um, it's what we will be doing for eternity. And it's what really the aim of our lives now is to know him, to grow in our knowledge, intimate knowledge of him. So that's what the goal of, uh, of these classes is, that we would see how vital the proper knowledge of God is to all of, of life. So um, let's begin with that video. I'll switch the inputs here, and, uh, and then we will pick it up after that. <clears throat> should boast in this. God says that he understands me and that he knows me. It's from that knowledge of God that everything else flows. The whole business of the Christian gospel is to bring us to God. To bring us to God. The primary question that comes in then is what kind of God is there? Who is he? What is his character? God calls us to so gaze on Him, to see Him for who He is, to know Him, to walk in true intimate fellowship with Him, that out of knowing Him, we desire for our life to accurately reflect Him. There's no doubt in my mind that uh, what a man thinks of God clearly indicates everything about his life of any consequence whatsoever. All the decisions that we make, that we see other people making, the root issue there uh, is what that person believes or doesn't believe about God, who they think He is. The great work of our lives ought to be to get to know this God and to get to know Him as He's revealed Himself to us on the pages of the Bible. You think of all the people we think are interesting and fascinating. Is not God the most interesting being, most captivating most attractive, most impressive, most beneficial, and of such infinite variety, ageless, that you could never possibly find his company mundane and monotonous. The emphasis here is hunger for God. So when we talk about attributes, we're not just talking about this or that, omniscience, righteousness, holiness. No, it's all these things that he is. The fullness of all perfection. It is a person that we're aiming for. He is the goal. And spiritual communion, fellowship, intimacy with Him is the path. We have a passion for Him. And you might almost say an obsession with God. That's the Christian. When he's thinking of God biblically, that's what it does to us. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. Those who are far from you will perish. But as for me, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Good stuff, huh? So that's it. Theology, that's what we're after. Knowing God, um, who He is, what He's like. And that's not some abstract thing, some, some, some theories that, that we're about. Um, 
theology is immensely practical. It's practical because there's nothing more important for your daily life. There's nothing more influential on how you live from day to day. There's nothing more relevant for any circumstance you'll face in life than how you think about God. Your knowledge of God is the spring from which all of life flows. So what we're doing in systematic theology is immensely practical. But we're also studying this because um, theologians are not some small group of people that are isolated in a library somewhere studying deep thoughts and things about God. You, my friends, are theologians. Tonight I'm speaking to a room full of theologians. Every one of you is a theologian. Everyone in the world is a theologian. Everyone in the world has a worldview, a way of interpreting life and reality, and at the center of which is a theology about who God is. Even the most ardent atheist has a theology. He's rejected the biblical God, but he has constructed other gods in his place. But he has a theology, and so do you, and so does everyone else in the world. So that's why we're studying this, because you're a theologian. But the next logical question that must be asked is, do you have a correct theology? That is, does your theology accord with truth, with what is really there? You see, not any theology will will do. When Israel constructed the golden calf, you remember that story in Exodus 32, um, they had a theology. They said, look, Israel, behold, your, your God, Yahweh, who brought you up out of Egypt, this calf. They had a theology. The problem was that it was made in their own imagination and according to their own image. So you see, that the problem is not that people do not have a theology, but that their theology is not in accord with reality, with what is really there. A theology shaped by our finite and fallen values and understanding and desires. That's the problem with the world, and it's often the problem with us believers. When you get saved, you don't automatically get it all together, do you? You begin a slow process of reshaping your theology, your your thoughts about who God is, about God's world. This world and life view with God at the center of it slowly um, as you grow. And that is our goal as Christians. To bring our thoughts about God and his world um, continually being corrected away from our own imagination. Which leads me to my final point I want to make about theology before we move on. We're going to be assuming from the outset of our study that we cannot know what is true. We cannot know much about God or his world or his will apart from what? The Bible, the scriptures. It's the scriptures alone which are sufficient to tell us all that God wants us to know about who he is and and what he is like. And therefore our theology, our study about God, must primarily be a study of the 
scriptures of the Bible. That's what it means to be a Christian. You've come to embrace the Bible, the scriptures, as your ultimate authority. And as Christians, our aim in life is to have a theology which is true, or to say it another way, a theology which is biblical. I'll give you a quote to get us going here by David Wells in his work, No Place for Truth. sums it up well. He says, Theology is a knowledge that belongs first and foremost to the people of God. And the proper audience of theology is therefore the church, not the learned guild, um, the academia out there. Whatever this guild might contribute to the life and construction of theology is to be gratefully received. But the university fraternity is not its primary auditor. I say this because theology is not simply a philosophical reflection about the nature of things, but is rather the cogent articulation of the knowledge of God. Its substance is not drawn from mere human reflection, no matter how brilliant, but from the biblical word by which it is nurtured and disciplined. And its purpose is not primarily to participate in a conversation of the learned, but to nurture the people of God. That is its nature and its purpose. In other words, theology, what we're doing in these equipping classes, is more at home here in the church, what we're doing, than it is in a seminary classroom somewhere, or than it is in a university somewhere although that's important. It is primarily for us, the people of God, for our nourishment and growth. So if theology is essentially a study of Scripture, then the next question is, how should we go about this study of Scripture? And that's where systematic theology comes in. There are a number of methods of of doing theology. Let me give you a couple of them here. There is uh, what's called historical theology. It's an examination of the development and articulation of doctrines through the course of church history. So, for example, it will study the atonement, how that doctrine was articulated and perhaps developed um, in the way it was applied or understood through church history. Another theological discipline is biblical theology. It's the study of a biblical theme or topic which traces its development along the storyline of the Bible. So use atonement again. It may only look at the Pentateuch or the Old Testament um, and and trace this theme out within that that section of of biblical history. But the idea is it develops it along the storyline of the Bible. Another one is practical theology. If you've been around Timberlake any amount of time. You've heard Mark uh, Hager especially talk about practical theology. Focuses in on the practical outworkings and implications which flow from our theology. Um, So these, and there there are a number more of methods for doing theology. Um, But systematic theology is its own method, and that's what we are going to be talking about tonight. Systematic Theology. So just what is systematic theology? What do you think? How would you define that um, for me? Okay, good. There's an order. Excellent. Excellent. Yep. 
Excellent. Good. Organized. Good. What else? Anything else? Very good. Excellent. That's a very good one. Yep. Anything else? You're all right on. Well, before I give you my definition, um, I just want to, if I haven't done it already, I know the word systematic theology can be daunting, can be maybe intimidating for some people. It sounds like a something complex piece of machinery that only the professionals can really understand. Um, and that's not what I want you to walk away thinking from this study. Um, there's certainly technical and intri- intricate aspects to good theology, um, but that's not all that systematic theology is. So this evening, I want to spend our time talking about what this thing is, and I want you to come to, to love it and not feel intimidated by it. So how many people in here have studied systematic theology in the past, read the systematic theology textbook? Okay, have a few. Raise your hands. Good, good. It's a good number. Let me ask you another question, though. How many in here have ever used the Bible to answer the question, what is the gospel? Or, what is God like? Or, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Or, what is the church? And why is it important? Perhaps you were doing it for your children who asked a question, or for a new believer. Um, Raise your hands. Say most of us. Well, if you have, whether you've taken a systematic theology course or read a textbook or not, you have done systematic theology. I hope that's encouraging. Um, It is not complicated. So what is systematic theology? Here is my little definition. Systematic theology is a method of theology which seeks to synthesize what the entire Bible teaches us today about any given subject. I'll give you a couple of uh, quotations here. Wayne Grudem, any study that answers the question, what does the Bible teach us today about any given topic? John Frame likewise says, systematic theology seeks to apply Scripture by asking what the whole Bible teaches about any subject. So, for example, systematic theology may ask, What does the Bible teach us today about prayer, or justification, or the second coming of Christ, or the deity of Christ, or atonement? And then it will seek to collect all the relevant passages together and synthesize the teaching. So the point here is that systematic theology seeks to synthesize the teaching of the entire Bible, of all that the Bible says for us today. So that's number one. Number two, systematic theology seeks to carefully organize the biblical data orderly and logically. So it not only examines all the relevant passages in Scripture, but then it seeks to clearly communicate the truth being taught by those passages. Demers and Lewis say that systematic theology aims to produce normative guidelines to spiritual reality for the present generation. It organizes the material of divine revelation topically and logically, developing a coherent and comprehensive world view and way of life. 
goes on to say, There is a body of truth to be known, and it is possible for this truth to be expressed in orderly form. Notice what I have underlined there. The end goal is developing a completely biblical world and life view. A way of seeing and thinking about all of life through the lenses of Scripture. That God's thoughts are becoming my thoughts, and I'm progressively seeing and thinking about life as He thinks about it. That's the goal. And to do that, systematic theology tries to package all of the data in a way that can be more easily understood and we can make use of it a little bit easier. And it's going to seek to do this in a, in a couple of ways. I want to give you two. How does it try to orderly and logically um, present the truth? Number one, it often uses a number of extra-biblical terms and definitions. So can you think of any of those terms or, or definitions um, that... Systematic theology may try to use. Yeah? Excellent. Trinity. What else? Okay. Soteriology. What's that? Addiction. Okay. What else? Justification. Justification. That would would be a biblical word, so it definitely uses that word for sure. Um, Eschatology, mm-hmm. Christology, omnipresence, canon, inerrancy, incarnation, substitution, church government. The list could go on and, and on. None of these words are used in Scripture. Nevertheless, they're, they're still helpful and they're important. And sometimes these words can actually bring more clarity and concision to a topic than a large collection of propositions strung together. So use the example Trinity. If we wanted to not use the word Trinity, then every time we want to express this concept, we would have to go through a long list of propositions uh, every time we wanted to speak of the truth. And it could be not only cumbersome, but it would defeat the purpose. It wouldn't be clear. Um, John Calvin and his Institutes of the, the Christian Religion has a really lengthy section on the Trinity And in it, he brings up this issue about the use of extra-biblical definitions and terms and some people that complain about it. And um, people say that they're they're only seedbeds for fights and quarrels. We shouldn't use these extra-biblical terms. But I love how, how Calvin responds here. He says, If they call a word foreign, one that cannot be shown to stand written syllable by syllable in Scripture... They are indeed imposing upon us an unjust law which condemns all interpretation not patched together out of the fabric of Scripture. In other words, if we are going to jettison any theological word that's not used in the Bible, then we must jettison any interpretation of Scripture which does anything more than quoting Bible verses. And that would not be faithful. Our job is to clearly communicate what God has spoken and what it means. He goes on to say, But what prevents us from explaining in clearer words those matters in Scripture which perplex and hinder our understanding? There's hard things in the Bible. The Trinity is not easy um, to understand, but yet it's there. It's true. We must know it. Yet which words conscientiously and faithfully serve the truth of Scripture itself 
and are made use of sparingly and modestly and on due occasion. In other words, we can often express and communicate a difficult biblical truth with more clarity by the careful use of a single word like trinity than in a complex list of all the biblical data every time we want to speak of the, of the concept. So the, the, the terms, the extra-biblical definitions are, are important. They're helpful. They're clarifying to synthesize um, the biblical teaching. But they also bring with them a level of definitiveness, of, of preciseness. Um, I think it's actually the main reason people don't like them. People that complain against the terms and the definitions that are not in the Bible, um, it's usually not because they just want doctrinal clarity. Um, it's usually because they don't like the clarity uh, which the single word gives. They would rather hide in the shadows of lots of, of words rather than landing on a specific um, doctrine. I think this is especially true in our generation um, in which nobody likes anything that is clearly defined or dogmatically expressed. Um, you're considered to be arrogant if you would claim to be able to interpret Scripture and Declare doctrine so clearly and precisely. Um, it's our postmodern age we live in. But to be faithful, we must do that because the Bible is clear on these things. So, this is the point terms and definitions in theology are important and useful because of the kind of precision and pointedness um, which they bring, which many words cannot do. So that's what we're after. We want to organize the biblical data orderly and logically, and one way is with terms, definitions. Okay? Before we go on, let me ask you, what might be a couple of dangers? Um, So we've just talked about the positives, the pros, um, for using biblical terms, definitions, to clarify truth, to synthesize it. Well, there might be a few dangers, though, we need to be aware of as we go through this. Chris? Yes, excellent. Yep, we'll talk about that in a minute. Very good. Yeah, Ed? Mm-hmm. Good. Yep. What else? Yeah. Good. Being content with witty-sounding theology and uh, not being careful to match that to Scripture. Good. Anything else? These are good. David? Yeah. Yep. Amen. You guys got all of mine, so very good. That's it. Let me, uh, let me give you this quote here by John Frame, which expresses just that. Um, we should not look at definitions to find what something really is, as though a definition gave us unique insight into the nature of something beyond that which we could find in the Bible itself. We should not view them as the real thing to which the Scriptures must answer. It's the other way around. They're convenient, they're useful, they're helpful, but that's all they are. One way you can test yourself here 
is as you're doing theology, what is your tendency? Is it to dive into Scripture deeper? Does it push you more into Scripture? Or does it do the opposite and cause you to be less in Scripture and more in theology books and in man's articulation of things? Good theology should be driving you back into Scripture deeper um, because that is our authority. So it can be clarifying and simplifying, but we must be careful that we do not think um, and uh, any more insight into God can be had through these man-made categories than through the pages of Scripture. Number two, I think another danger is that we could begin squabbling about words while agreeing on all the essential points in the doctrine. Um, at the end of the day, I don't care if you use the word trinity, although I think you're probably foolish if you don't, given what we just talked about. Um, the point isn't the word. Um, the point is the truth. Um, so another danger is that we could be caught up on words that are man-made. Okay, let's move on here to the other way. Systematic theology tries to carefully organize the biblical data is by attempting to show the logical relationships between biblical truths. The logical relationship is between biblical truths. It wrestles with, for example, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, all the truths, and tries to explain what is meant in the Bible by God's sovereignty. And then it will wrestle with and try to explain all the truths about man's responsibility. And then it seeks to demonstrate how they relate to one another uh, in a way that's faithful to, to the Bible. Now, what might be another temptation here? Chris Cartwright back there hit on it. seeks to relate, show the relationship, the logical workings of these various truths together. What do you think? Any dangers? There's the danger of constructing a nice, neat system, which now becomes the thing through which we're reading and interpreting Scripture. And all of us can be tempted to to do this because I don't think anyone in here likes to have Um, any questions unanswered, right? We like to resolve all the tensions. We don't like that feeling of of tension, um, which may be in in the Bible. Um, The Bible often leaves things in very difficult tension. You you can't reconcile them. It doesn't answer all the questions uh, which we would like answered. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, the end times, angelology, Satanology, and a a number of, of things. So we must be careful that as we're doing systematic theology, we don't try to fill in the gaps, right, so as to speak, so that we think um, uh, ought to be the case in, in Scripture if, if God has intentionally left a gap. Uh, we must be rest, rest confident. That's all we need. So, for example, the Bible declares that God is absolutely sovereign above and over all people, all things, all events, all choices, and the Bible declares that man is absolutely responsible for every one of his choices. And while we should seek to understand all the Bible says about all these topics, there comes a point when we must rest content with the silence the Bible gives on how these tensions might be resolved. Ultimately, I don't know how these tensions can be resolved. One of my professors called it a wall of worship. We must wrestle with all the Bible gives us, but there comes a point when we hit this wall. We, we, we can't go any further in explaining 
how these two things might, might work together. And rather than trying to get over this wall or explain it away or get around it, our job is to bow down and worship before it. Um, I love this quote again by John Calvin, very famous one. He says, let us, I say, permit the Christian man to open his heart and his ears to all the discourses addressed to him by God. Only with this moderation that as soon as the Lord should close his sacred mouth, he also shall desist from inquiry. So in our theology, we must go as far as God intends us to go. And some people fall into error on that side. They don't go as far as God wants them to go with all the data that's given to them in in Scripture. But we must also stop short of seeking to pry into mysteries in our systematic theology, um, which God has not revealed to us so we can have a nice, clean system with no hard tensions. And some people fall into error on, on that side. So in systematic theology, we want to construct a system that is faithfully and logically organizes what the Bible teaches on any topic. And we must also be careful that we do not allow our system to be the grid through which we make Scripture answer. Or to say it positively, our theology ought to be derived by our exegesis of Scripture. Dr. Zimmick's famous line here, our theology ought to be exegetically derived and systematically expressed. That's the goal. Because that's the goal, it means that we're constantly in progress, aren't we? We're constantly clarifying and correcting and fine-tuning our theology. and That's the gift of exposition. I was talking with Pastor Farrell just before church, just the, the benefit of exposition, sitting under it week by week. That's what's happening. Your theology is constantly being fine-tuned and refined and corrected from the pages of Scripture, and that's what we want. Dr. Zemek again said, we must constantly examine our hermeneutical, theological, and apologetical presuppositions in the light of exegetical data. All of that to say, our goal in systematic theology is always to be in submission to Scripture. Okay? One more. What is systematic theology? Number three, it seeks to apply the Scriptures to all of life. John Frame, theology is the application of Scripture by persons to every area of life. Another one, systematic theology aims to produce normative guidelines to spiritual reality for the present generation. In other words, systematic theology is not interested in mere articulation of objective truth for its own sake, as an ends in itself. It's concerned to apply that truth, to our lives with the goal of faithful Christian living through a thoroughly Christian worldview. And so from culture to culture, generation to generation, how it does that, things that it's going to emphasize and ways it's going to apply the truth is going to vary. Um, Still working with all the same data, but the truths and the applications are going to vary according to the needs of its audience. So for example... Systematic theology is going to collect all the scripture tells us about mankind, anthropology. But it's not going to stop there. It's going to seek to now apply that to our lives in our generation to help us live biblically consistent. Um, 
It helps us make a connection between the biblical data and faithful living. So today, that would look like discussing topics of homosexuality, biological gender, what it means to be a man versus a woman, the sanctity of life. Um, These are all things which were not necessary to emphasize a century ago. No one was asking these questions. But faithful theology requires that we not only gather biblical data, but we apply it to life so that we all live with a biblical, God-centered worldview um, for life. Another example is uh, inerrancy. Back at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, um, with liberalism denying the authority of Scripture, saying errors are all in Scripture, it became a need for faithful theologians to... Use this word, not a word you're going to find in the Bible, inerrancy, to clarify what the church has always taught about the scriptures, that they are inerrant. So that's what systematic theology is. It's a method to synthesize the entire Bible. It seeks to carefully organize the biblical data. And then it seeks to apply the scriptures to all of life. So before we move on, I'm going to talk next about why is it important. Um, any questions, comments? Okay. Let's go on. Why is this important? Why is it not enough to just read your Bible? Why do we have to get caught up in all this theologizing? Um, simply put, because believers are not only called to read the Scriptures, but to apply the scriptures to our lives. We're called to know the scriptures such that we know God and live faithful lives to the glory of of God. So I have four of these. We'll go quickly through them. Number one, it is important because it is inescapable. It's inescapable. We said above, you're a theologian, whether you realize it or not. And as a believer, you do systematic theology, whether you realize it or not. So the example we gave, you explain the gospel or you describe to your children what God is is like. You counsel a visitor about the importance of the local church. You're doing systematic theology. But because it is so inescapable and it's part of what we do as believers, it's imperative we do it properly um, in a way that faithfully represents the teaching of the Bible. So that's why it's important. It's inescapable. Number two, it's important because it is commanded. Now, you're not going to find the verse that says, thou shalt do systematic theology. Um, At least I don't think so. Um, But you will find passages which command the teaching of sound doctrine. So, can I have some help looking up? I've got four passages here. Who can get 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 to 4? Anyone? 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 4? All right, Matthew. 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. 1 Timothy 4, 6. Anybody? Zach? Titus 1, 9. Titus 1, 9. David? All right. And then Titus 2, 1. See a hand in the back? All right. Titus 2, 1. Great. All right. So the first one. Matthew?
good. Don't teach any other doctrine. There's a body of doctrine to be known and communicated and passed on. Okay? Chapter 4, verse 6. Sound doctrine, nourishment. Titus one nine. Instruction and sound doctrine. Chapter two, verse one. Okay. So, in other words, Paul recognized there's a body of truth to be known, taught and passed on to subsequent generations. This has also been commanded us in the Great Commission. Go to Matthew 28, if you will. Matthew 28. The Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? Matthew 28, verse 18 Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what is the Great Commission? The Great Commission is, Go make disciples. And you make disciples by teaching them to do what? To observe what? All that I have commanded you. So it's not just conversion, it is teaching, and it's teaching all the words of Christ. But that's not it, it's not just for head knowledge, what is it for? Teach them to do what? To obey, there's the application The Great Commission involves making and maturing disciples by teaching them everything Christ spoke and helping them bring their lives progressively in line with that. You might say, well, Michael, that just includes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? That's the words of Christ. Well, no, Jesus commissioned apostles whose words were the foundation of the church, the entire New Testament. And Christ also certainly affirmed the authority of the Old Testament, and its relevance for our lives. In other words, when it says, teach them all I've commanded you, it encompasses the entirety of Scripture. The Great Commission calls us to teach all the words of Scripture in such a way that they're applied to our lives. Okay? So it's commanded. Why else must we study systematic theology? We study it because it is important, because it is edifying and strengthening for faithful Christian living. We're not studying theology for its own sake. We never encounter people in the Bible studying theology as an end in itself. It's always unto something. Um, Godly living, personal encouragement, Christ-likeness. So we're going through Romans right now, and uh, it's been great. All of Paul's letters, what is the first half? It is doctrine, theology. 
But then you come to a pivot point in chapter 12, which is what? Therefore, the application, the purpose of it. We study theology, not as an ends in itself, but for changed lives. Again, John Frame says it like this. Don't have his quote there. The theologian states the facts and truths of Scripture for the purpose of edification. So as we start bibliology, um, we're going to talk about a lot of things. The necessity of Scripture, inerrancy, inspiration, sufficiency, authority. The goal is not that we would just walk out with a bunch of data in our heads, but that we would be people who love and reverence and fear and obey the Scriptures more and more. But how does systematic theology do this, this strengthening, edifying work? Um, I can think of three ways. I think the first way is it gives us a grid system. Um, How to think through doctrines and um, teachings as we're confronted them in, in life. Ephesians 4 says that we're not to be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, systematic theology gives you a, a filter, if you will. It helps you bring the truths of God together so you can more readily analyze the winds of doctrine that are blowing. And there are a ton of winds of doctrine blowing out there now. Um, it stabilizes you. It, it keeps you from being blown so quickly um, by anything you, you hear. It also helps us understand the parts in light of the whole. So who in here uh, likes jigsaw puzzles? Anyone? Yeah, I hate them. All right, I don't have time for them. Not patient enough, I guess. But um, systematic theology is like a jigsaw puzzle. If you pick up one piece, you're not going to probably understand what that piece is. Is it an elephant? Is it a tree? I don't know what is what's going on here. Systematic theology gives you the whole picture, if you will. It shows you how that truth in God's word relates to the other ones. Um, Remember Pastor Farrell talking before it, you, you, you come across a teaching in the Bible, you don't know what to do with it, you, you pigeonhole it, you stick it up here until you find a place for it. Systematic theology gives you that template, how, how to relate this doctrine to these other ones in, in Scripture. It can be very edifying and, and strengthening. Number three, it, it helps us distinguish between major and minor doctrines. Um, it helps us to faithfully place emphasis and weight on what Scripture places emphasis and weight on. Baptism is not on the same level as substitutionary atonement. The timing of the rapture is not on the same level as the Trinity. And systematic theology helps us to put an emphasis on what Scripture emphasizes. So it is edifying and strengthening. Can you think of any other ways, any other reasons it might be edifying? How has it been in your life? Excellent. Good. Anything else? How might it be edifying, strengthening? Yeah, Tim. Hmm. 
That's right. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. It's good. Great. All right, let's move on. Last one. It's important because it's inescapable. It's important because it's commanded. It's important because it's edifying and strengthening for all these reasons. Finally, it's important because it facilitates meditation and communion with God. Um, We said at the beginning, this is eternal life that they might know you the eternal God and and Jesus Christ whom whom you sent. Um, The goal in our life is not just to have all these facts about God, it's to know God. And part of that is knowing the truth about God, who He is, what He's like, and what He's told us about everything in life that we need to know in the Scripture. There's a sweetness that comes from careful and deliberate thoughts about God. Your prayers will be enriched as you've chewed on and have enjoyed the, the marrow and the, the sweet thoughts of God's character and His providence and His sovereignty and mankind, who He is, and the Scriptures and all we've been given there. Our souls will be satisfied and what fills them is not the garbage of the world, the, the cotton candy of social media, it's rich thoughts about God. That's what we want. There's a quote I love by by C.S. Lewis that makes this this point. He says, For my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. And I rather suspect that the same experience may await others. I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a bit of tough theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. So, so I don't know about the pipe, but uh, I think I saw Mark down in his office the other day with, with one. So you can ask him. But, uh, so it's sweet, it's rich, it's nourishing uh, for your souls. So perhaps you've been intimidated by doctrine, theology, systematic theology in the past. Um, that's something that belongs in the academy. It's something for the experts and the professionals out there. Um, or maybe you thought of it as something cold, opposed to true devotion and affections for Christ. Um, I don't think so. I know I'm preaching to the choir tonight. You are mature, faithful brothers and sisters. Um, I encourage you. Um, this is sweet stuff we're going to be jumping into. But perhaps you're in another category. You love the study of theology and doctrine but your motives are only to win an argument. Um, Impress others with how much you know. Satisfy your own curiosity. Um, And I hope that this study will come to help you as well to use theology rightly. It's to know God. It's to humble you under the knowledge of God. It's to be applied to to all of life so that we would have a, a lens, a grid through which to view life with God at the center as he's revealed himself in the word. So before we wrap up, I'll give you a sort of a um, little taste of what we'll be doing in the coming weeks. Bibliology, whet your appetite for that. Um, but any questions, comments on what we talked about tonight? Any thoughts? Yes, Ed. 
That's right. That's right. Amen. So I guess you could say from that, Lord willing, that Lord would use this to make us better disciplers, to come alongside people who are helping to grow in the faith, as we're growing in the faith, um, to bring truth to bear in their lives. Good. Anything else? Questions, comments? Let me give you a sneak peek at what we're going to be doing. We're going to be in bibliology, and we're starting with bibliology. Uh, because the Bible is essential for everything we need to know in theology. Without the Bible, we can know very little about who God is and what he wants us to know. Um, so we're going to start with what does the Bible teach us about itself? The Bible's our starting point. It's our ultimate authority. Now what does it declare about itself? How should we think about the scriptures? And so next week we're going to be tackling the necessity of scripture. Why do we need the Bible. Then we'll be talking about the authority of Scripture. What does the Bible claim for itself? Then we'll tackle the canon of Scripture. Which books make up the Bible and why? And then we'll be in the, what I call the apology for Scripture. How do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? How can I know that? How can I defend that? And then finally, the attributes of Scripture, um, infallibility, clarity, sufficiency. Are there errors in the Bible? Is the Bible able to be understood as God intended it to be? Is it enough for all we need to know um, and all that God wants us to know and do? Um, so we've got some good stuff coming, and uh, I'm excited. I hope you, you are as well. Um, so any closing questions, comments? All righty, let me pray and let you guys go. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Um, thank you for truth. Thank you for doctrine. Without it, we are tossed about uh, on waves and by winds. All those teachings um, of man that are out there, I ask that you would use these classes to stabilize us, to ground us, to grow us, to be more faithful Christians, to be more faithful as we disciple one another. And Lord, that you would be glorified. Uh, we love you. We thank you. We commit the rest of the evening into your hands, and we give, give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.